This podcast is sponsored by Regatta Outdoors. It's a glorious spring day and you're heading out on a walk. What do you bring with you? A paper map? Plenty of snacks? Well, of course they're important, but any seasoned hiker will tell you that footwear is the first thing to consider. Whether you prefer relaxed rambles or challenging summits, comfortable and reliable shoes are essential. Regatta has waterproof and breathable footwear for the whole family, for every outdoor occasion. Discover the range in stores nationwide and at regatta.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast, the nature and countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name is Fergus Collins. I'm the host of the podcast and editor of Country Farm magazine. And with me, it's my dog Idris. And we're out for a little wander along the River Usk, which you can hear bubbling away in the background. But it's a bit more than just a walk today because we are scouring the banks here, sort of gravelly banks hear Idris walking down there have a drink looking for little bits and pieces of human history shards of pottery odds and ends that tell a story and this is quite a fertile ground for that this little spot here also very fertile ground for a group of mallards and some dippers I saw earlier but I've been inspired to have a little bit closer look at the human history as much as the natural history by a recent chat I had with the London mudlark Lara Maitland, who is an old friend of mine, is an old colleague of mine from many years ago. And I rediscovered her recently um, when she released a book about mudlarking, which is the whole process of wandering around on the Thames foreshore, on the mudflats at low tide, just looking for interesting objects that have stories to tell. But it's fa- it was fascinating. So Lara agreed to catch up for a chat with me and tell me a bit more about her amazing life spent wandering around some desolate places of the Thames Estuary. So I hope you enjoy episode 13 of our Histories and Mysteries season, season 10. And please do leave likes and feedback on whichever podcast provider you use. And you can always contact me. My email address is editor at countryfile.com. I look forward to hearing from you and I'm sure we can use your emails in the podcast. Lara, brilliant to see you after so long. I should say to listeners that Lara and I used to work together in publishing many, many years ago. How many years is it? Years and years ago when we were young. How many years ago was it? It was before the millennium, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Almost sort of before things like the internet. But um, yeah, well, uh, but since then you've you've become, well, you're writing books, you're a famous treasure hunter, how did that all start? Because we, we were just sort of editing books millions of years ago. So what's happened? Lots. Of, well, lots has happened. I mean, I I don't know if I'm I'm a sort of I've sort of fallen into all of this. Really, it was my hobby that's turned into um, yeah that that got turned into a book. So I mean, since, gosh, since I've seen you, I went freelance. I've I've been on tour with Kiss. Um, I've done. <laughs> I've yeah. rather checkered past. Um, but but I mean through it all really was my my hobby of of mudlarking, which is going down onto onto the Thames foreshore uh, when the tide's out, because obviously the Thames is tidal, to look for evidence of history, lost and found and for, forgotten um objects. And um through through all of it, that's been my my sanity point, I suppose. 
Um, and I quietly got on with it. Uh, and that's where I went just to get my head together and get away from the city and get away from all sorts of things that were going on. And then in 2012, I started a Facebook page and I suppose it all sort of took off from there. Um, but really, I was only I only started the Facebook page as somewhere um, to put to put the I was finding all this amazing stuff. And I thought that I need to share this with people. And so I thought, well, I'll start a Facebook page. Well, not really expecting many people to be that interested in it. And it got more and more interesting interest from people. And I did it anonymously, actually. Oh, really? Okay. That's why. That's why. We, that's why I couldn't track you down until until later when you became famous. But I'm just just going back to yeah. like lots of people go off and walk. I mean, I moved out to the countryside here in Wales, Brecon Beacons, and I go walking the hills. But you're walking on on mudflats. Am, am I right? I mean, yeah. I've looked at. I've lived in London, and the Thames foreshore is a sort of. It's it's well. Describe it to those who don't know it. Well. I mean, I bet you didn't think, I bet when you lived in London, you didn't consider the Thames as a place that you could go to. Not really. No, no, no. There was a sort of always turn your back on the Thames almost. Absolutely. It was just an annoying thing to get over, wasn't it? You know, you kind of get over the bridges <laughs> yeah. or, or you just didn't notice it. But when you look at London from the air, the thing that you notice most, its defining feature is the river. It's what you can see from space. Um, it's the reason that London's there. London wouldn't be there without the Thames. So it's really, really important the most important, I think, part of the city that's really forgotten and overlooked by so many Londoners. And um, I grew up in the countryside. Um, I grew up on a farm. Funny, a, a bit of a strange sort of farm because it was only 30 miles as the crow flies from London. So it was very close to London, but it was down in this, this little valley away from everything else. And you could have been anywhere, really. And of course, like most teenagers, I was desperate to get away from it um, and, and move to London. So I eventually got to London. That's when we met. Uh, when we were in publishing, you know, when I after university, I went went to London, but I missed the outsidiness of, of the countryside. And and so I started looking for somewhere to go. And, and I went to all the parks, you know, Regent's Park and uh, Hyde Park and Hampstead Heath and even the little parks near where I lived. And there was just nowhere where I could get that real sense of um, solitude. I think that's what I was looking for. I was looking for more of a raw sense of nature and solitude, that the parks were just too busy or just too manicured. It just didn't give me. And then I was waiting for a friend. We were, we were meeting in a pub by the river and the tide was in. I remember it very vividly. She was late and um, the tide was in and looking over and looking at the river and looking up and thinking, this is it. This is This is where nature comes into the city. It is just like a sort of a streak of nature that comes in and goes out twice a day. It brings all sorts of things in and, and, and takes goodness knows what out with it. And there's no tall buildings. So you get the weather as well. You know, there's nothing blocking the weather. When you're on the foreshore, it really rains. It's really windy. It's very cold. It's, it's, it's a few degrees colder down there. Um, it's damp, it's foggy, and you just, you could be anywhere. You know, once you go down those steps and you're standing on the foreshore at low tide, you you really could be anywhere in another world away from the city. So you've been out wondering that. I kind of miss having, I, I, I regret having missed all that, actually. That sounds wonderful because, it, like you, I, I've, I've had to move to Wales to find that. You found it in the city. Whereabouts, I mean, are you, do you have sort of particular places that are, because you, you've, your, your thing is that you're finding stuff while you're walking along the shore. 
Is that and when did, did that start at the very beginning? Were you sort of hands in pockets walking along, thinking, "Ah, oh, this is all right," and then, "Oh, what's that?" Well, I mean, it began. I began very much like you. I, I looked at the river on that day, and I thought, oh, "Yeah, this is great." And I started walking along the river path. The Thames path is brilliant. You can walk for miles and miles. And it took me quite a number of years actually before I realised I could go down onto the foreshore because that it is that sort of forbidden space. It is that sense of you're not allowed down there. Um, it could be dangerous. Uh, what if the water comes in? What if something happens? What if? And then one day I was standing at the top of these these rickety wooden stairs and I thought, well, why not? I'm going to go down and have a look, have a poke around. It can't be that muddy. And I did and I found a piece of clay pipe stem and realised because I used to, we used to find things like that in the fields and the gardens at home and I knew what it was. I knew that it was old and it was a clay pipe stem and it stood to reason that there'd probably be more down there. So uh, I went back. And I found different things. Every time I went back, I found something new. And it became obsessive, you know, because it's like a lucky dip. You just don't know what you're going to find on each tide. So I started going back more and more. And then I just went exclusively to the foreshore. I ditched the Thames path and I started going to the foreshore. Um, And the the tidal Thames, it it starts at Teddington, where Teddington Lock is, and it goes right out to the estuary. So it's about 160 kilometres of foreshore that um, you can well, get access. Gosh, I did not. Yes, of course it would be. But that's well, I guess you're talking about both banks as well. <laughs> both banks, yeah. And it is so different. It's a completely different beast. Um, from the, the, the river at, uh, at Teddington is is very green and, and countryfied and bucolic. It's, it's, you know, it's got um, weeping willows dripping into the water. You, you don't, you can just walk off the bank onto the foreshore. Whereas the estuary is just this wide expanse of mud, grey, quite grim, actually, but so different to the tidal Thames. So I, to cut along, to answer your question, because I... <laughs> yeah, I, I was wondering when you get around <laughs> to it. I'm getting back yeah. to the question. Now, <laughs> I, I mudlark on the foreshore right the way, really, from, from the tidal head right the way out to the estuary. I don't go west that often just because I live east and it's hard for me to get to. And you don't actually find that much when you go past Vauxhall. Um, I tend to go east and stay central and go out to the estuary because uh, I know it and because I know where to look. There's key key info there for future mudlarkers that down, downstream from Vauxhall. But I, two, two questions that I think just to... Um, one is, is it dangerous? to be wandering out on the mudflats. Obviously, this is tidal. Um, and I have been out there and squelched around. I thought, you know, feet getting stuck in in the mud a bit. Um, obviously, you're still here to tell the tale. Is, is it dangerous at all? And what, do you have to ask permission? Or do you ever get to get off my land or get off my foreshore? Um, yes, that's a very good question, Fergus, and something that um, I always like to bring up because it's important to mudlark responsibly. It, the foreshore is private land. It's owned by the PLA, the Port of London Authority, and you need a permit to mudlark legally. Um, now, you can apply for them really easily on the Port of London Authority's website, and they last for three years. And I can't remember exactly how much, I think about £80. Uh, and it's important to do that to do that responsibly you are on someone else's property really so they own they own the foreshore and is that just walking on it or the act of of mudlarking the the sort of treasure hunting element if you're not search if you're going down to the foreshore with with the intention of searching you need a permit if you're going down there to walk your dog or just to go for a bit of exercise you don't need a permit you can just go down and walk on it the objects that you find don't belong to you they still belong to the pla so you're not allowed to sell the things that you find other 
um, which is another good thing, actually, because then that stops people from filling up eBay accounts and Etsy shops, which you shouldn't be doing. You know, it's not it, that's not what it's there for. Um, it's, a, it's a fragile environment, uh, both historically and ecologically. So you need to be aware of that. And, you know, there, there are rules and regulations. You can you can't dig in certain places. There are scheduled monuments that all the information is on the Port of London Authority website. You you need to report anything of historic interest over 300 years old to the Portable Antiquities Scheme, which is part of the um, the British Museum. It's all in my new book. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I, I, I didn't realise there was so much to it, and that's really interesting because I, I was completely unaware that um, that there was you, know, you couldn't take. I mean, can you? I'd love to talk about the stuff you found, and I'm sure that's coming, but. Um, you you can take some of these things home then presumably and, and and sort of display them in cabinets around your house. You you can. I mean, you the the, the portable antiquities scheme is designed. It's this incredible project run by the British Museum to record um, objects that are found on beaches and rivers and gardens and fields. I mean, we live on top of so much history in this country. It's always coming to the surface to to make a record of what people are finding. And it's a really, really important. They've they've recorded now over a million objects. So it's really important for everybody that you record the things that you're finding because it's our shared history. It's not something you should be taken home and just forgotten about or heaven forbid put in the bin. Uh, you know, share it with people, record it. You are, they do let you keep most things. Um, very, very rarely a museum might want the pieces that you find. If you find an object that qualifies as treasure, that means it's over 300 years old, made of a precious metal, gold or silver, then legally you have to report it to a coroner. And that's a different different thing altogether. Uh, this sounds really exciting, though. I mean, so what, so what are you finding generally? And what's, I mean, yeah, what sort of things do you do you tend to find on a, on a on your average mudlark? Well, do you know what? You called me a treasure hunter right at the beginning, and 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 that's not a word I really. No, I, it was. I'm I'm glamorize, I'm glamorizing it for um for um. <laughs> well, it's pretty glamorous. It doesn't need glamorizing, but it's more just to kind of get that essence of of your. It's it's sort of unearthing. Yes. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, you're never going to get rich from mudlarking. You are basically finding rubbish or other people's rubbish, but it's really, really old rubbish. Um, It's very, very rarely anything that you'd find in a museum because it's not that good a quality. It tends to be the stuff that people didn't want anymore that they either lost or broke for some reason. And it's the ordinary things from ordinary people. It's not, you know, very often it isn't the most beautifully decorated, beautifully made thing. It's a it's an object that performed a very ordinary function, like a spoon or a knife. And um, so that's what I love about it, because it is the things that you don't find in museums, just the ordinary everyday things that tell stories, you know, pins that held people's clothes together. They're everywhere on the foreshore. And each one is handmade. Um, the pinning industry was enormous in this country because everybody was pinned into their clothes, right from babies were pinned into swaddling and then people were pinned into their death shrouds. So pins were really, really important. And to, to think that each one is handmade is it still amazes me and I find them by the handful. Um, so every walk you're going to find something. I mean, are you just walking with your sort of head down looking? Are you, do you have these sort of, this sort of field of vision that is like 
couple of couple of meters in front of you and you're just sort of scanning all the time it depends where you go it really depends where you go if, if you go to certain places in central london i can spend five to six hours in an area not much bigger than i don't know tennis court um probably smaller maybe half a tennis really you would just scan up and down that would explain it actually i i have <laughs> Do people come and say, are you okay? Have you lost a contact lens or something? Do, do... Oh, God, they're always, always shouting down off the river wall, what you lost? I used to tell them I've lost my car keys. Um, so, yeah, people are always shouting at me on the for sure. Because really? <laughs> nobody okay, knows so, what I'm doing. So, and how does that make you feel? Do you just kind of go, just go away, you losers? Or do you feel like, oh, gosh, I mean, presumably over the years, you've just got used to that. But I have. You, you, if they're being polite, then I'm quite happy to explain. If they're being rude, then I just ignore them and pretend I can't hear them. Um, because I, I do a lot of meditation down there. You know, it's not just searching for stuff. It's also... Well, that, what you just said about spending so many hours just in such a small place, I mean, that, would, that explains, because I look at your Twitter feed mostly, which is just incredible. And, and um, I, any listener who isn't following Lara should... What, what's your Twitter handle? Well, I'm on uh, Facebook and Twitter as uh, at London Mudlark and Instagram at London.mudlark. Uh, so, uh, and it's just... It is just a series of brilliant stories that you... Because you seem to try and find... Go behind each thing that you've, you've found to give a little bit of background. But you're finding just... I mean, I would be delighted to find that sort of thing. But now I'm understanding if you're spending six hours in a tennis court-sized area, that's, um, yeah, that's, that's needle in a haystack, sort of. It, it is. I mean, I kneel yeah, down. Awesome. For those areas, I just kneel, I kneel down and I just, just look. I don't dig. I don't use a metal detector and I don't scrape. I don't move anything at all. I just rely on what the river's delivered on each tide. And each tide, it'll leave something different. Um, but then I might go out to Rotherhithe and, and, and you can walk for a long way at Rotherhithe. So it's a different sort of searching. You're sort of walking slowly and looking, um, but there's less to find. It's the, the finds are more, more few and far between. So it depends where you are uh, for what you'll find and then the way you'll look for it, that way you search. So you, you just learn. You learn You learn to get your eye in. That's what my dogs call it. And you start to spot things, perfect circles and straight lines, because nature doesn't make, tend to make perfect circles and straight lines. And they really stand out once you get your eye in and start seeing them. So that's interesting. I mean, over my shoulder, there's a there's a fish on the wall, which is made of sea glass, which I found. And I got into, I, I do get into a meditative state looking for sea glass. Um, is, is that the sort of what you feel when you're out and about? You sort of just lose track of things and, and are able to kind of enter that zone of calm absolutely you just like i say you go down the river stairs and you just you just step away from 21st century london and you're you're somewhere else entirely and i use it as my place to switch off i always have done uh you know when the twins came along it was it was my escape from babies to be honest um (laughs) and you know it's it's got me through some really sort of difficult times in life just because No one's there. No one's bothering you. No one's expecting anything. And you're doing something, but you're doing nothing as well. And so, and then there, of course, there's all the afterlarking as well. You take all these objects home, and then you you can just relax in the evenings with them, looking at them and researching them. And it's it, it's it's just a hobby that just keeps giving. <laughs> After afterlarking is a new one as well. I re- it all sounds totally enchanting. Um, you're down on the river, and you're spending a lot of time by the Thames big waterway that flows past millions of people 
I did know one of your tweets recently. You you said that you've seen a body floating by. Have you? Has this? Is that something that happens? You know, obviously you're going to come into contact with some of the more some of the sadder stories of of the river. Is that something that you've you've seen a lot of? Or? It it is. I mean, the river has character. Definitely has character. It's um, you really get that sense that the river will. Whatever we do, the river is eternal. You know, whatever we do to it, it's going to still be there when we've gone. It was there before we came. Rivers have this way, and I really feel that when I'm down there, that I talk to the river a lot. It, it, because it's a moving thing, it it, it takes things away. It, it just takes your problems away. And it and it attracts people to it at, at very desperate points in their lives. And um, I've been mudlarking now for about 20 years, and in 20 years I've seen uh, three now. Um, suicides in the river oh, and gosh. there when I was writing my first book I spoke to the suicide prevention team and about one person a week takes their life um, in the river and and they have done through throughout you know that time Waterloo Bridge used to be known as Suicide Bridge before they built the modern one it was a toll bridge and and people would come across because it was quiet and that's where people would jump in. And that's why the RNLI station, there, there's an RNLI station there. There was always a boat um, there through the 19th century to pick the to, to pick the people out of the water. You know, you read Dickens and, you know, they're pulling bodies out of the water there. And, uh, yeah, so last week I was um, happily mudlarking in central London, looked up for a second and saw the unmistakable um, yeah. shape going past and then the RNLI and the police came and did a wonderful wonderful job they pulled him out of the river very quickly and and very dignified way and they were off again but you know the the the, the river police they're stationed at Wapping they have a, a floating mortuary um there so um specifically for it and so yeah it, it is a river of of lost souls and tears it's it, it is a place that draws people to it um, when they're at very desperate points in their lives. Um, so it's not unusual to see bodies. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, you're sort of picking over all these layers of people's lives and then seeing the modern lives coming past. Yeah, it's, um, what about the sort of wild lives, wildlife? And because you're out again in quite, as you say, lonely, peopleless places, or, or certainly places where humans haven't quite dominated do you get to have some interesting encounters with birds and beasts and other critters i do and in central london as well you know i've been i I, because the tides change according you know they can sometimes be very early in the morning at night i don't tend to go mudlarking at night but um you know sometimes i'm there very very early in the morning and i've seen harbour porpoises under millennium bridge I've seen a, a seal hauled up onto the onto the foreshore at uh, near Waterloo. Uh, there are peregrine falcons on top of the uh, Tate Modern, um, and uh, I, I saw one of them jumped off the well, flew off, caught a pigeon midair. There was a terrible squawk and a puff of feathers, and and it was gone. So you can see the most amazing things in central London. Lots of cormorants pulling eels out of the river. Um, <laughs> all sorts of fish wash up. They're usually dead. I did find. Um, a seahorse. There's a colony of seahorses out on the um, Isle of Dogs, and they were washing really? up at one point. I did not yeah. know that. Gosh, I found a dead okay. one outside um, the uh, the Globe, uh, which is the furthest up that anyone's ever found one. 
Um, and then as you get out on, onto the estuary, obviously, that, I mean, it's birdtastic out there. There's just so many birds. And in the morning, if you're out there and, and the sun's coming up and the birds are all also starting, it's incredible. It's a, I love the estuary. It's, a, it's just such an amazing place to be. And seals again. It's uh, and, and, of course, the poor old whales that come up the river ever so often as well. Um, so you've had a, a, a few encounters with the whales as well. That's uh... I, I did see that one years ago. The, that that one that came up to uh, the house that got as far as the Houses of Parliament. Uh, I think once they're in the river, they're usually not very well, so they shouldn't be in the river. They don't make it out. Yeah, gosh. So you're just creating this really evocative picture of the the Thames and and its estuary and and that sense of wildness that you've got from it. Is it you're on your second book? Is it your second book now? Is um... Uh, my first book, uh, Mudlarking Lost and Found on the River Thames, uh, that came out in 2019. And that is basically the, the, my story, how I got into mudlarking. And, and I, I sort of, I wanted to take people down there with me. Uh, so many people won't get the chance to do it, don't want to do it, don't want to get muddy, but, you know, fascinated by it. And so it's a journey from the, from Teddington, the source, out to the estuary, uh, talking about how I got into mudlarking, my background, what I've seen, what I've found, and the, and the story of the river right the way through. Uh, so that's what I call a proper book, proper proper words, Fergus, not pictures, um, <laughs> which I found really do, hard do, to do, write. Do, do people still do those? <laughs> they do. They do. They take a long time to write. <laughs> so oh, I've discovered. <laughs> so a proper quest book from from start to finish, but also kind of your life woven into that. That, yeah, yes, that's, that's the... yes. Um, and, and so my second book, which came out in August, is The Field Guide to Larking. Um, and that is Beachcombing, Mudlarking, Field Walking and More. So it's sort of, it's this is an illustrated book, which um, I was felt a lot more comfortable doing because uh, Fergus, you and I worked in illustrate. I've always worked in illustrated book publishing. Yeah, so yeah. I was... A lot of text exhausts us, I think. A lot of text <laughs> exhausts me. And I've spent my life cutting text out of, of things. Mm. So... Uh, this I felt a lot more happy with. It's a um, it's an it's an illustrated book, beautifully illustrated by my friend Johnny Mudlark, who is an enigma in his own right. And Johnny Mudlark, who uh, I met many years ago, is he like the Banksy of the Thames? The Banks of you know, that, there's a pun there somewhere. He is. He he is an artist. He doesn't own a mobile phone or a computer, so I had to rely on bumping into him. And the first time I saw him, he showed me this beautiful. Um, book where he'd just drawn to scale everything he'd found and he's obsessed with finding beads he's found over a thousand beads and he's drawn every single one from two angles and painted them and they look like they could just drop off the page and the moment I saw this book I thought I've got I've got to write a book that I can include these pictures because they're incredible and it was his diary and so this this new book the field guide is like a diary it's 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 supposed to be for people to fill in their own things and to inspire people to go out and look around use their eyes you know wherever they are in fields or beaches or or rivers just just start looking for the little things uh because it's the smallest things that tell the greatest stories and so that one's out in that one came out in august so i've done a, a proper book and a picture book fantastic i'm really envious i don't have any books but um i have magazines <laughs> um, but that's I, so that that's available in the shops published by they're both by Bloomsbury, my wonderful Bloomsbury. publisher, Bloomsbury, who um, are, are just produce beautiful, beautiful books. They are totally, I mean, you wrote a lovely feature for us, which featured some of the, basically trying to encourage people exactly what you just said, which is to spend more time looking, breathing, 
watching rather than you know, they sort of, let's do a 12-mile mountain walk and not see anything along the way. I think that's a really lovely way to, to, to go walking and to that mindful element that you talked about earlier. But I'm really interested also in what are what are the th- I mean this is the the simplest of all the questions. What are your favourite things? The most amazing things? The things that the British Museum seized from you, and is now in the collections. Yeah, they've seized very little from me. They've got one uh, one gold Tudor aglet, um, which is a great word. I love the word aglet. It's that yeah. little hard bit on the end of your laces. You know when you do up your shoes. Uh, That's right. called an aglet. Um, what is it? Okay. <laughs> and I found, found lots of, of those. I found lots of aglets, loads of them. And they're usually copper alloy and rather boring. This one's made of gold filigree, so it would have been it would have belonged to someone very important because it would it dates from the time sumptuary law where you weren't allowed to wear gold unless you were a very very you know upper class person. So it comes from a mini hoard that's coming out of a certain part of the foreshore that will remain nameless. And all of these little tiny pieces of gold are either broken or squashed or, or, or parts of bigger things. So it's thought that it's it was probably from a bag of scrap gold. And this is um, from this mini hoard that the Museum of, Museum of London's collecting. They want to put it on display. And so I've donated that to the Museum of London. So that's the only thing. Oh, no, they've got a leather hat that I found still in their fridge. Um, I'm not sure what they're going to be doing with that. So, so yes, I mean, my favourite things are the really, really, really personal things. You know, the stuff that really gives you that sense of touching, making a connection with somebody from the past. Um, because when you pick things up off the foreshore, you're really, I'm always very aware that I'm the first person to touch it since the last person lost it or dropped it or threw it away. And you really get that uh, buzz. From, I get a massive buzz from that. You know, that moment you mm. you pick it up, you see it, you pick it up. You know, sometimes I'll see something and I'll just sit, I'll sit for a while and look at it before I touch it because it is such a sacred moment, that moment you you pick it up and touch it. And then I don't like anyone to touch it for a while. I keep it very much to myself um, because it is it is magical. It's so magical. And that's why I do it. Um, so that the really magical things are shoes. I love shoes, finding shoes. You find a lot of shoes, do you? You do. People have always been losing shoes. It's, you know, when you drive down a motorway and you always see a left shoe. It seems that people have been doing it forever, hundreds of years, because there are lots of shoes in the river. And the Thames mud's anaerobic, so it, there's no oxygen. So it preserves organic material perfectly. So you can pull a shoe out of the river that's been there for hundreds of years, and it looks like it's just been dropped. Um, my favourite shoe is a, it's Tudor again, it's from the 16th century, and it's a child's shoe. And I pulled it out, and it came out just perfect. The only thing that had rotted was the stitching. That held it together but it, the mud was holding it together and when I cleaned it out inside you could see the impression of the toes and the heel inside and the little mm-hmm. little creases across the top mm-hmm. and it was just it, 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 it was an incredible moment just pulling that out but the problem I then had was conserving it because as soon as you let it dry it's a bit like you know in um oh what's his name Indiana Jones where things just sort of crumble to dust Yes, beautiful for a second. Beautiful for a second and then they vanish in front of your eyes. It can be a little bit like that, not quite as dramatic, but if you just let old leather dry out, it shrinks and it curls and it cracks and it's just ruined. And the same with wood. So I needed to find somebody who could help me conserve it. And so many old shoes are found in London because it's so damp once you start digging digging down. Uh, the Museum of London just have loads of them. They didn't want any more, so they couldn't help me and they didn't have any money because... Museums haven't got any money. 
So I went down to the Mary Rose and they had shoes almost exactly the same, but bigger from the same date. And they were brilliant down there, really helpful. But again, they just didn't have the budget. They couldn't help me. And the guy I spoke to had studied at your way, actually, at Cardiff. There's a conservation course there. And he uh, he said, go and speak to them there. So I, I, I spoke to the um, Professor Henderson, who runs the, the department. And she said, brilliant. Uh, yes, we'll take it. We'll give it to a student to work on. And so it it got conserved and it taught a student valuable, valuable um, things about preserving things that have been in water. And that student's gone on to uh, specialise in waterlogged um, archaeological. Oh, wow. So you've had this role in this person's yeah. career yeah and, and it, also it, your, sh- your shoe got your shoe got saved the shoe got saved i now the shoe is now on display whenever i can show it to people or take it anywhere or, sh- or put it on display I, I like to show people because it's so amazing well um, you have it you have it at home now do you oh yes and now it's yeah. mine it's at home. brilliant gosh so you've and you're really busy at the moment which is partly the reason why we're not walking along the foreshore together but i hope sometime in the in the near future we can we you can show me the Although six hours in the size of a tennis court might be. I will see how long you can last before you get bored. I would love to to do some larking with you at some stage and it would make, and perhaps we'll do a follow up recording out in the wild. But it is so fascinating to. But you've, you've, so you've got lots of things going on. You've obviously promoting your book. You do do lots of talks and. Um, The funny thing is, when you write a book these days, you're expected to become a speaker which I was dreading, absolutely dreading, um, but I actually quite enjoy it. So, yes, I'm doing quite a lot of talks. I do them for I'm, – I'm with Emma Bridgewater this weekend on Saturday. Uh, then I've got quite a lot of – I do private talks. I do um, book signings and talks all over the place. So, And I, I really enjoy talking to people about it because people are so interested. Uh, it is absolutely fascinating and it's really wonderful to see what you've been up to since obviously we last since we worked together all those years ago. What a thrilling and wonderful thing you do. Um, Lara, thank you so very much. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With milder weather and longer days on the way, now is the time to dust off your hiking boots and enjoy the great British countryside. And wherever you go, whatever the terrain, Regatta Great Outdoors has the right footwear for any adventure. From grassy hills to rocky trails and even paved footpaths, there's a regatta shoe to suit your walking preferences. Discover lightweight trainers for day-to-day wear or walking shoes for multi-day hikes like the brand new Samaris 3. Combining comfort with performance, the Samaris 3 is available as a shoe and boot for both men and women and is ideal for all your hiking pursuits. Tech Foam InSock technology supports your foot, while an EVA midsole and shock-absorbing heel protects you from bumps along the way. Plus, it's waterproof and breathable, so your feet stay dry no matter the weather. Available to shop in stores nationwide and at regatta.com. It was so amazing to catch up with Lara because, as as we mentioned, we worked together years and years and years ago uh, in a publishing company in London. And she was always the cool girl in the office and I was the sort of new boy, sort of very quiet and shy. But it was always clear she was going to go on to do great things and really interesting things. And what an interesting 
life to have gone on to, to become a mudlarker, Lara the Larker. And really fascinating to hear about all her, her the, the sort of treasures that she's found. And talking about two treasures that I've found, <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the podcast studio, in the real podcast studio, no longer on Zoom, with Jack Bateman and Hannah Tribe, who help produce this podcast and come up with the ideas and help record it and um, uh, and do the funny stuff. <laughs> um, someone's got to. Someone's got to do it. Yeah, it's a hard job. And uh, I, I've struggled over the years, as regular listeners will know. So, yeah, as I was saying, Lara is a, a tre- treasure hunter and has spent... Well, treasure hunting's the wrong word, and she would slap me down for that. I think it's more that she is a... Uh, she just loves finding stories through the objects she finds in on beaches, but particularly as, as we talked about the, the Thames side, the, Tem, the banks of the River Thames and the mudflats and the, at low tide. And it really reminded me when Lara was saying about sort of wandering along, looking at the ground, looking for little wonderful tiny things of interest. It reminded me of that podcast we did, you, you and me, Hannah, down in your holy land of Gower. Um, we walked along the stream. What was the name of that stream? It's pull, or the Bishopston Stream or the Critton or the Gritton um, in South Wales that goes down through Bishopston Valley onto um, Pulthy Bay. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. And we were sort of foraging around in the shingly banks. Of yeah, and we planned a big walk to go all the way down this valley and end up on the beach, which we did do, but we spent an awful lot of time looking at very, very small details in the stream and finding out about the sorts of things that were happening in and around the stream and in that valley from the pieces that we found. Yeah, that was fascinating. There were loads of different types of pottery. I mean, it was mostly pottery, wasn't there? There were odd bits of metal and things which we couldn't recognise. But you were really, I mean, you're a sort yeah. of trained ceramicist, oh, I should say. Uh, oh, yeah, sort of. Um, <laughs> I I'm really... some great British understatement. <laughs> yeah, you are a trained ceramicist, let's be fair. Yes, OK, yes. Um, but I'm a hugely, I'm hugely interested in the sort of social history that is around ceramics generally. So... These, this idea of them being um, pieces of art that we eat from and interact with every day. Um, and the, all, the, all the different sorts of people who are involved in creating this sort of the ordinary cups that we use every day. And you can tell a lot about a place from the pottery that you find in sort of slag heaps or old compost heaps or in bottoms of streams because people would have just thrown away cups and saucers and like broken cups and saucers in the same way that they would have thrown away stale bits of bread or other things that they didn't need scraps of fabric and particularly in that valley that we went to there are a lot of pieces of what we would refer to now as sort of cornish ware like the blue and white stripes it's quite Mm. classic yeah there were lots of patterns bits which um, were really attractive but there's also things like quite fancy quite elaborate quite like super decorated and higher status ceramics that were left there by the wealthier people who would picnic there so if the cup broke when they were on the picnic then they would just chuck it these are the tribe ancestors yes. we're talking about here. Yes. The, 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 the owners of the valley. <laughs> yeah when we owned all the land so like lara was talking about when she picks up a piece of something she finds whether it be a thimble or a coin or a bit of jewelry or very ordinary everyday things, so shoes. She talked a lot about shoes. She really gets a sense of that connection with... Do, do you feel a similar sort of, under, like, 
kind of emotive connection that she was getting from from finding those small I think for me it's more like a historical connection. Like I'm thinking about the sorts of families and the sorts of people, but not individuals. I think it's different when you find something that is clothing or pipes or something that is like been on a person, touching a person for a long period of time. Mm. Good point. Yeah. 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 I was quite inspired by um, her talk, her talking about, uh, and, and you know, since we went walking and finding those things, I've often been looking out. I have found some on my local river, the River Usk, where there's a really good, odd little river, it's an odd bank of shingle, and there are, every every flood, it seems to expose a new layer of human detritus, and there's bits of pottery which I've started collecting in a box. I know you kind of have like boxes. Of boxes. I've got boxes everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, they're just pretty things. But one I found stuck in the mud. I took my son there, who was really reluctant to come out. And I said, we're going to find treasure. He said, Dad, you've done this. You've pulled this trick too many times. Anyway, we had a lovely walk along the river. And when we got to this place, to my surprise, stuck in the mud, in the shingle, was an odd little thing that looked like it was a something. And we washed it in the water. And it turned out to be a model car. And it was definitely... It said made in England in the, you know, all solid die cast thing, but missing the wheels and the under bit of the chassis, but really old looking car, like a 1930s car. And it just said made in England and it had the number 861 in it. So I've looked it up on the internet. I can't find it anywhere. So if anyone knows, I'll put, I'll put the photo up on Twitter at some stage. But it just, this thing came out of the mud of the river. And I did think, who last played with this? And also... Yeah, what, what is it? <laughs> is it worth anything? Um, it won't be. But it's just, and we both, he really got, my son really got a lot of joy out of the search, the detective work after that. So I think there's something to be said for the, as Lara called it, the after larking, where you, you take, you, you have the fun of finding the thing in the first place, then you go home and you spend time trying to work out what it was and what it is and, and kind of make connections. So that was really, really interesting. So um, I should say, uh, we probably mentioned it in the podcast, but just to remind you, do catch up with Lara's Instagram, London Mudlark, and her Twitter account, at London Mudlark, where she's always showing off her new finds. And I I follow her. It's endlessly fascinating. So um, keep in touch. I'd love to go larking with her one day in in the flesh, but she's so busy. We had to do it over Zoom. And if you want to listen to uh, Fergus and I during our Welsh Adventure, it's episode 96, our eighth most popular podcast. People obviously like to listen to a bit of foraging around the rivers. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it was really fun. And I think there's a good reason why it's it's popular, because it was a kind of really nice little quest. And also it's got treasure in the title, doesn't it? It does have treasure in the title. It also has the mystery fish. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say no more about the mystery fish, the fish that dropped from the heavens that we will never, ever work out how it ended up there. And it has two precious items hosting it. Oh, Jack, you're too sweet and kind. And uh, I can see your face and I don't believe you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jack, uh, any treasure hunting of late? Or have you just been delving into the treasure bag of the podcast post bag? Um, there's not any physical treasure. Uh, there's been audio treasure, uh, which the is the uh, the sound escapes on... Uh, Fusey Country File Magazine's podcast, which I think are, are gold. 
I, I agree. Yeah, okay, well, this loving can continue <laughs> elsewhere. But yeah, you can listen to The Sound Escapes every Friday. Uh, they're produced by Jack, recorded by and recorded and presented by Hannah. They're just gentle, meditative five to ten minutes of natural sound, a little postcard from the countryside, I think you call it, Hannah. I do. Well, so, Jack, thank you for that. Podcast <laughs> 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 plugging. Um, anything from the postbag this week that we need to bring to listeners' attention? I have dived deep into the postbag again, once again. And uh, this time, it's, again, it's the virtual postbag. I've gone to Twitter. Ah, the Twitter bag. The Twitter bag. And I have got this tweet from Miru. Hello, Miru. Hello. And they have said, wouldn't it be a lot easier and safer to just search for some remains of a deceased animal rather than a live one? And by this, I think they're uh, regarding the big cat episode once again, which is clearly quite a lot of conversation around it because I think most of my post bag yeah <laughs> of late has been cat related searching for mystery big cats in the countryside which is um, episode 118 where I went hunting with naturalist James Fair for big cats in the Cotswold and I guess it's a fair point why go chasing a live thing when you could be looking for its prey remains although that was the I mean we couldn't find we couldn't find either is that what they mean there or do they mean the actual dead cat well, uh, well, good point, Hannah. Yeah, because um, that's what I thought. Cat. Yeah, you thought they're, they're finding the remains of the big cat. Yeah. Well, I think that puts uh, almost the f- finger on the point of the the, the issue of this whole big cat uh, story is no one's ever found any remains, or to my knowledge, I, I know that there have been a few stories of farmers digging up skulls of strange creatures, um, and I'm sure if you look on the internet, there will be tales of. But as far as I know, and as far as James reported, no one has found a skeleton or a, or, the, or the partially decomposed remains or or even roadkill of a big cat. And most other things are hit. You know, there are so many roads and cars in Britain that pretty much everything eventually does get hit at some stage. You'd have thought if there are the numbers to sustain a population of big cats. I actually thought Miru was talking or Miru was talking about the remains of the prey victims. But that's it's, it's all about how we interpret these things. In the podcast, we did talk about the, the Cotswold cat story comes from finding a dead deer and then lots of debate about what actually killed it. And those who believe in big cats instantly jump to the conclusion that it was a big cat. Uh, although we, we as, as you, if you listen to the podcast, I won't give it away, but we do find out the, the real story behind the Cotswold cat. And it's just as entertaining as if there was a big cat. Thank you, Maru. You've prompted some discussion here. Um, I was going to say, keep them coming. I'm really enjoying seeing these different perspectives and different sides of the conversation. And I think it's now kind of the podcast seemed to just be the starting point. And now it's kind of developing further into whatever um, other people have seen or what they believe and yeah, and delving not, a bit deeper. You're, you're absolutely. I, I would definitely encourage people to get in touch if you've heard of any stories anyone's told you about them or you've taken a photo of something odd. Not just in the UK, because these stories are universal across across the world, I think, the stories of mystery animals, mystery cats. Although if you live in sort of Africa, you're quite um, in, in an area, <laughs> in a na- <laughs> national park, you might actually see real big cats and be quite unbothered by our kind of hysteria in Britain <laughs> over them. Uh, local newspapers devoting many pages to blurry photos. Email me, Fergus Collins, my email address is editor at countryfile.com. 
and uh, or email me with any anything you'd like to say about the podcast or ideas or thoughts. Um, we really welcome the positive stuff. Uh, <laughs> but you know, we take on board all the feedback. And it would be really nice if you could tell us about your treasure hunting. What have you found? Good idea. Yeah. Oh yeah, send us send us both um, stories and pictures because everybody finds things on walks, even from a glorious feather to um, to something perhaps a little rarer and more. Um, with more of a story around it. Good idea. We're also very grateful for feedback and likes on whichever podcast provider you use because that helps us get to the podcast to more ears and that's wonderful. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Join us again next week when we'll be having another lovely adventure in the British countryside. Goodbye. Whether it's gloriously sunny or a spring downpour, you can always get outdoors with Regatta. So what are you waiting for? Find a route, grab your walking shoes and start exploring. Regatta Great Outdoors offers all types of performance footwear, from technical hiking boots for regular ramblers to durable walking shoes for the whole family. With waterproof and breathable qualities, shock-absorbing comfort and superior grip, Regatta footwear is designed to withstand whatever challenges Mother Nature throws your way. Discover the range in stores nationwide and at regatta.com.